We're jumping in the book of Revelation. If you have a, a copy of a, a Bible with you, you can open up to chapter one is where we're going to be. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. And in this series, we've told you every week so far that, that there's a fundamental question that we're trying to answer. And it's, what do I do with this book? As a follower of Christ, what do I do with this book called Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus? What do I do with this book? Some people seem to be incredibly passionate about it. They can't wait to tell you everything that they know about it, and, and, and you're intimidated. You're going, I don't know. What do I do with this book? These people seem to know all stuff. And they're telling me all this stuff, and they're talking about all kinds of crazy stuff that's going on, and can't you see what's happening in the world right now? And don't you know, a revelation is happening in the days in which we live, and I'm just intimidated. And so I just don't do anything with that book. And so this series was inspired by a person who asked the question, hey, I'm not looking for all the fancy stuff. I just want to know, as a follower of Christ, what do I do with this book? I'm like, that's where we're going. What do I do with this book? And so the goal is not to become a revelation ninja, okay? You'd be like, Shoo. no, that's not the goal. The goal is that we would have a fundamental understanding of all of God's word. And so um, I'm personally passionate about the book of Genesis. There's some stuff in the book of Genesis that, that I'm very passionate about. I think that we've for years mistaught that book. I think we've taught whole generations to misunderstand the beginning of the book of Genesis. I'm incredibly passionate about that book. And so I get people who are incredibly passionate about the book of Revelation. I'm incredibly passionate about the book of Jonah. You'd be like, Jonah? What do you mean? Because it's more than, than about don't run away from God. If you think the book of Jonah is about not running away from God, you missed it. That's for another series, another day. And so I understand people are incredibly passionate about it. But the one thing that we really need to understand is, and this is true about every book in the Bible, absolutely true, but especially with the book of Revelation, studying the book of Revelation requires humility. All of God's word requires humility. But especially, if you're gonna pick one book and go, there's one book above all the others where I need to hold my view loosely and not be dogmatic, and whatever I do, don't try to overpower another person with my view, it's the book of Revelation. Why? Because there's people who know, love, and follow Jesus who have varying views, who've studied it for years, who have completely different views on how we're supposed to interpret this book. And so the view that we're going to take is a view that tries to point us towards the practicality of the book of Revelation, that we would understand that this isn't, uh, God hasn't given us this book that we have to have some kind of secret code to uh, understand. He's given us the Old Testament. If you wanna know what the secret code is to understand the book of Revelation, it's called the Old Testament. That's the secret code. All of it, it's all there. It's just a matter of us applying and understanding. So as we walk through this week, we're going to cover a really big chunk. And every week this is true, but especially this week, you're only gonna get out of this week what you put into it. We're going to read about one church. There's going to be seven of them. 
And if you look in your Live It Out this week, we've done it a little bit different. Instead of there being five days of Live It Out, there's seven days of Live It Out. We've made it a little bit simpler, a little bit shorter, so that each day you could read about one church from the book of Revelation and then ask Jesus what it is that he wants you to see and apply to your life as we seek to be a people who are living transformed lives in the world in which we live. You see, that's this week's big idea. Jesus is is calling us to continual transformation. It's continual. We don't come to faith and then go, okay, well, I guess that's good. I'll see Jesus in heaven someday. Let me live. No, it's, it's, it's this ongoing daily alignment we talked about last week, aligning with who Jesus is, that when we become out of alignment, that we would realign ourselves with who Jesus is and who he's calling us to be. And in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus speaks to seven actual churches that are out of alignment. Some of them are in alignment and they're facing adversity. Two of them are in alignment, facing adversity. But, but seven churches in, in the first century that he's writing to with a very specific message that, that is to them and is actually still for us. So in Revelation, in, at the end of, I mean, in the middle of chapter one, John has a vision, and in that vision, it begins with these words. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, it says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, when I, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And in week one, we talked about how these are, are seven actual churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And, and you, uh, if you're going from the, the island of Patmos, where, where John is imprisoned, and the first city that you would come to, if you're the courier and you were going to these seven churches to deliver the mail, the first one that you would come to is the church uh, in Ephesus. And then the rest of them are in a circle. It's a letter that's going to be read in one sitting. The messenger's going to go and read this letter to the church and then go to the next city and the next city and the next city. And so this is a circular letter to seven actual churches. And then from there... John has this incredible vision that Mark talked about last week, this incredible vision of Jesus that's nothing like the resurrected Jesus. It's a vision, and it's an Old Testament-style vision. That This is the one book in the New Testament that's written like an Old Testament prophecy, that God is revealing more than just um, the actual. There, there's a, a vision that takes place to, that's communicating more than, than what we would believe on the surface. And so if we want to take this intro, okay, and just summarize it with one statement, we're going to do it this way. That, that in this introduction, Jesus is making the case that he is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. All the imagery that gets addressed there is from the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about that just really, really briefly. 
because each one of those descriptions of Jesus is then taken and used in the introduction to each one of the letters that are through chapters two and chapters three to the churches. As you read it this week, you're gonna be like, oh, link it back. When, when Jesus is saying that, that he is what? That he is in the middle of the lampstands, what's he saying? He's saying he's in the middle of God's people, the church. Okay, so there's seven lampstands. He's saying, okay, I'm in the middle of those when he's addressing to the church and says, I'm in the middle of that. I'm, I'm the one who holds the stars in my right hand. I'm in the middle of the lampstands. He's saying, I'm the one who has all authority over the messengers to the church, and I'm the one who's in the midst of the church. And then he'll go on to the next church and use another introduction. And so there's going to be these phrases as you walk your way through, and they have everything to do with what's going on in that church. They're not just random. They have everything to do with the problem or the adversity that that church is facing. Now, I, I want to acknowledge that, that throughout time, people have looked at these, at these seven churches from multiple uh, ways of interpreting Scripture. And one of the ways is that they have taken and they've said, okay, each one of these seven churches represents a period of time in which the church went through a certain amount of things. And so, okay, yeah, well, this is the church in Ephesus that represents the first so many years of the church. And, and so they have, I mean, you like big charts, man, like big charts and all the things and all the stuff and it sounds fascinating. The problem is, I just don't think that's true, okay? And I'm not saying that, that we need to, to, if you believe that, that's fine, okay? Once again, we have charity towards one another. We have humility towards one another. I just think it's way more practical than that. I don't think we have to be a, a historical scholar to have exactly what God is telling us because why? We have the Old Testament. We have this letter, and, and it's going to, for us, help us see what's going on in the culture in which we live because there's something that has not changed. Humanity. People. People are still people. The, the problems that you face they look a little bit different. They, they come from a little bit different sources. But at the end of the day, we all have the same root problem, and that is I want to be the God of me. I want to be my God. That's the same problem that Adam and Eve had at the beginning of God's story. I don't need God. That is the same problem that these seven churches faced in the first century, and it's the same problem that we face as we look at our world today. The world says we don't need God. In fact, if you, if you embrace the God of the Bible, you, you're actually someone who, who we would reject because you're close-minded, you're narrow-minded maybe even bigoted. And so it's really important as we take a look at these, these two chapters that we would know that this is a message for the church in every generation. If we take the historical view where, where each church represents a period of time, in that view, we're in the, the days of Laodicea, and all of a sudden, the other six churches become irrelevant. 
doesn't really matter. It's, it's great information. Hey, that's really cool, and they can line it all up, and that's really neat stuff, but there's nothing we do with that. It's just information. But if these churches represent all of God's people for all time, all of a sudden, I have to wrestle with what's going on in every single one of these churches, and every single one of these churches have issues that's going on in my world today, every single one. And so as we take a look at one, we're going to set a model, okay? We're going to set a model. And the lens that we're using is, is taken from a guy by the name of Grant Osborne. He, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a, a New Testament scholar at uh, Trinity, which is the, the divinity school for our denomination. We're part of a denomination, if you don't know that, the Evangelical Free Church of America. We have one theological institution. It's called uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and Grant Osborne was there for a really long time. And He wrote, "Um, there was a time in my life when I believed these letters were meant to signify the seven periods of church history. One major difficulty with this interpretation is that the details of each letter fit the historical situation of that church. These are letters meant to discuss the actual situation of each church at the end of the first century. At the same time, though, these churches are representative of others as all the letters end with, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so if we take a look at these seven churches and go, okay, these are actual churches that had actual problems in the first century that represent God's people, the church, for all time. And so while these are written to specific churches, they're for us. So we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. This is, we just have time um, I actually was going to look at two churches, and then I figured out we were here for an hour, and that one is, wasn't going to be cool, okay? So I'm not even exaggerating. Like, I was like, whoa, I wrote two sermons. I've got to pare that down a little bit. So we're not going to look at two churches. We're going to look at one church, and the church we're going to look at is, is Ephesus. But what we're going to show you is what you can do every day with each church. And, and so here's what it says to the, in beginning in chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's Jesus, right? He's in the midst of his church. He has all authority, and he is present with his people. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, if you're taking notes, make a little note there that this is a letter to a church. So often when we read the scriptures, when you read this and says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested, what? Well, the whole world is evil. I cannot bear with them. See, I'm rejecting. Nope, nope, no, 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 no. This is people in the church. This is church people. So as you're looking at these letters, as, as, as the author, Jesus, is talking about what's going on in the church, he's not saying, hey, this is what Rome is doing. This is what's going on in your culture. He's not addressing that at all. He's saying, you, as followers of Christ, I see how you don't put up with the evil people and, and the people in your churches who call themselves apostles, but they're not, you, you, they're false and they're fake and, and you're pointing that out. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So, so he's beginning by encouraging them. I, I see this, and he gives them some, some encouragement, and then he goes to correction. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, sorry, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, so this is a form letter, and every single one of these is going to follow a pattern. And the pattern is more complicated than this, but I want to give you a simple pattern. And so everyone begins with an introduction and a conclusion, but the simple pattern that you're going to see is, is a pattern of encouragement, correction, and reward. That's the pattern. Each, each day, you're going to notice. Except, all right, there's two of the seven churches that don't get encouragement, and there's two of the seven churches that don't get correction, okay? But generally speaking, this is true. And uh, every issue that's addressed to those churches, this is really fascinating, has to do with a, a modern issue in the day in which this is being written, right? Like in, in their day, in the, in the real time to that audience. And then as we take a look at in our world to go, okay, where, where do we see that kind of thing happening? So once again, you do not have to be an expert on what was going on in these cities to understand the cultural issues. You don't have to do that. But if you wanted to dig in and understand it, I think you would find it fascinating. I'm just going to address some of the issues that are going on in the seventh church, Laodicea. Okay, in that city, extremely wealthy city, as you read this week, extremely wealthy city that was situated between one city that had hot springs and another city where they got their water that was cold water. In that city in particular, the, the water was undrinkable. It was also known for, for fashion. It was also known, they had like eye doctors. You know they had like eye doctors? And, and they invented this stuff like salve to put on your eyes. You take all those little tidbits that I just gave you when you read that on day seven, when you read about that church, you can be like, oh, every single one of those. He gets addressed every single one of those issues. And, and so all of a sudden, when, when the reference is being given, hey, I wish that you were neither hot nor cold, all of a sudden that changes. And they're going, oh, I know hot water. That's good for something. What's hot water good for? That's good for therapy. What's cold water good for? Oh, that's good to drink but you're neither of those. You're in the middle. And all of a sudden that changes how we read that. We think, oh, it's all about being the hot water and being all on fire for Jesus. No, it's about being useful. I wish that you were dependent on P. I wish that you were useful, but you're not. You're like the lukewarm, worthless water. You're like the water you attempt to drink and it makes you puke. Oh, it, it was, they got it in a second. We're like that. It was also an extremely wealthy city. They, they, they're like, we don't need God. We can fix stuff on our own. We have all the stuff that we need. So as you read this week, know that that's going on, and that's happening in every single one of those churches. And so here are three principles that have to do with every single one of these churches. And the first one is Jesus encourages them to embrace a counter-cultural life. 
a countercultural life. I, I want to address something here. You may disagree with this. We can have a conversation later about it. But for years and years and years, we as the church were told that we were supposed to be culture changers. We were supposed to be culture changers. We were supposed to change the culture. And, and here's, okay, I'm, once again, just my opinion. We were lied to. We were lied to. We were never supposed to be culture changers. Jesus never told us to be culture changers. He calls us to be transformed people. Now, when a whole big group of people are transformed by Jesus, culture will change. But we had it out of order. We were told we were supposed to go change the culture, and if we get the culture to change, then people will be better people, and they won't be so annoying to me, and my life will be smoother. It will be easier to be a Christian. But that was a false message. Jesus, you know, Jesus never addressed the cultural change. When people come now and they're like, oh yeah, Jesus, he was, you know, he was this militant kind of figure and he was looking to overthrow. He was not. If he was looking to overthrow the government, he would have done it. What did he do? He died. That's what he did. It was totally other. It was the unexpected. He became the sacrifice that delivered the world from sin, but it wasn't by going in and saying, hey, people, fix yourselves. Clean yourselves up. Nope. What did he do? He died in order that people who have no hope of changing themselves could be changed by his power and his might through the presence of his spirit within. That's totally different than go and change the culture. No, go and change you in order that you can be a light in the world, that you could live in a counter-cultural kind of way. Now, John says this in a prayer. He's, I mean, as he records Jesus in this prayer, Jesus said this. He says, I have given them, my followers, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is praying to the Father. In John chapter 17, he's saying, okay, wait, they're, they're just like me. The world hates them because they're not like the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth or transform them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He says, hey, the world hates them. And I'm praying that you'll keep them from the influence of the evil one. And I'm praying that they would be transformed by the truth. Your word is truth. That they would be a transformed people as I send them into the world. Jesus didn't come to suck us out of the world. He came to inject us into the world in order that, that the truth and the hope of the gospel could, could impact the lives of people. We're called to be a countercultural people. The second thing you're gonna see is, is, is as we live this life, expect Jesus to encourage and correct along the way. Expect Jesus to encourage and correct along the way. Now, as, as people 
I think we, we tend to fall down in one of two directions. Very, very rarely are we people who live in the middle, like, oh yeah, we deal great with encouragement and we deal great with correction. We tend to go one of two directions. We either deal better with encouragement or we deal better with correction. I, I've told this story before, but I got to be a high school football coach for a couple years and I was coaching running backs and there was a, a running back by the name of Austin and and I would be like, all right, man, hey, you got it. And you go and super encouraging, whatever. And he'd go out there and he would run timid. And he, I'm like, Austin, what is going on? What's the deal, man? He'd be like, I don't know, coach. I run better when I'm angry. I'm like, we can fix this. <laughs> Give me permission. From then on, man, Austin, come on. I was all about getting him angry. He'd have amazing games because he didn't need the encouragement. He needed the correction. Run angry. I, I was a softball dad not that long ago. And um, softball people, uh, baseball people, baseball parents, you're gonna get this. Um, there's a phrase when, when there's a, a batter who's coming up. You hear it at all these games and travel sports. And you, man, every single game that I go to, baseball game, softball game, I hear the same phrase. You know, um, they say this. Somebody's coming up to the plate. Nobody better. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hey, there's nobody better. Gets under my skin every time. You know there's somebody better. There's somebody better. She's not the best batter. She's the fifth best batter on the team. <laughs> if she was the best batter, she wouldn't be batting in the eights hole, man. She'd be in the three hole, the four hole, man. This is where she'd be. They don't put seven, eight. You're not the best batter on the team. I'm sorry. If that's where you bat in the order, you're not the best batter on the team. I love you enough to tell you that. It doesn't mean you're not important. It doesn't mean you're not, in, you're, you're on the team. That's important, right? But, but Jesus isn't gonna be sitting there going, Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. Yay, you did so great. Your mom will do that. Your dad won't, but your mom will do that. That's not Jesus's role. He's gonna tell you the truth. He's gonna encourage you where you need the encouragement and then he's gonna give you correction. And so wherever you fall down there, whichever side you fall down, you have to be open to the other side. Okay, where, where is Jesus calling me to be encouraged? Some of us, we, we have a really hard time allowing Jesus to encourage us because we have such a negative view of us. We can't believe that Jesus would actually want to encourage you anything in our world. You have to be open to Jesus encouraging you. And then some of us were like, Jesus is so into me, he couldn't possibly want to correct anything in my world. And he does, all right? <laughs> and then we see this, that, that we're reminded that the reward is at the end. The reward is at the end. Man, I wish that wasn't true. I'd like the reward to be in about five minutes. Five days, five months, five years. But the end? Read Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> For generations, there's been people living with an eye towards the reward at the end of God's story. We're not unique. This is, 
This is what God has called us to. And, and he says, no matter what it is that you're facing, no matter what it is that you're going through, that no matter what it is, that the challenges that are in your horizon, they are worth it. So I want you to look at the overall structure that, that is there in your notes of this book. And what I've done is uh, we've given you some, some it, it, there's, there's a chiastic structure, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. It's not important that you would totally understand what that means. A chiasm is a literary device, okay? It's just a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated in reverse order. We see these letters have this kind of chiastic structure. The reason that we're gonna talk about this is we're gonna talk about it. The, the entire letter called Revelation has this structure as well as God's story overall has this structure. The scriptures are full of this kind of structure. And as you go through this week, what you're gonna see is that, that church one and church seven have a similar kind of thing going on. Church two and church six have this similar thing going on. Churches three, four, and five have a similar kind of thing going on. And what we've given you there is, is kind of like the, the problem, right? What is, it that they, that, what is it that they were dealing with? And so in, in Ephesus, it's lost love. In Smyrna, they're facing adversity. In Pergamum, it's, it, they've embraced a false teaching and, and they're being assimilated by the culture in Thyatira, uh, it's sexual immorality and unrepentance. In Sardis, they're unaware of their slumber. They're dead, right, or borderline. They're on life support. Philadelphia, they're facing persecution and rejection. In Laodicea, they have apathy, affluence, and self-reliance. And, and as we take a look at these, every single one of these issues are issues that we're facing as God's people in the days in which we live. It's just a matter of what day of the week it is. They're all things that impact us as well. But every single message will culminate with this reminder. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, to the ones who hear, let them do what Jesus says. We spent a whole series talking about this. To hear is to do. To hear is to do. You guys say it. To hear is to do. So it's not just, hey, listen to these cool little words. No, it's if you hear, if, you, if you're listening to what it is that Jesus is saying through the, this, the Holy Spirit into these churches, into our world today as God's people, respond. Change course. As you step into this week, I want to encourage you that the next steps look the same as they do every week. Um, it's about taking a step forward. And this week, if, even if you don't do them, I want to encourage you to do them this week. You, you'll see some stuff. It's some cool stuff. Allow the Spirit to show you what was going on in each one of these churches. You don't have to become a, a revelation ninja. You don't have to understand every little detail to understand that, that they were facing the problem of affluence in Laodicea or they were facing the problem of uh, false teaching in Pergamum. Okay? So we've given you some guidance there to, to run along. And then after you've done that, after you've, you've read, there's two questions each day that you would ask Jesus these two questions. What area in my life would you like to encourage and, and where do I need correction? So if you struggle with allowing Jesus to encourage you, that, that you would embrace that. Jesus, where, where in my life do you want to encourage me? And then, okay, Jesus, where do you, where do you, you want to bring correction? So after you read about the church, then ask these two questions. 
okay? Read about the church, do the live it out. Then, then before you're done, ask these two questions. And do it in, in, as a group, do it as an individual, do it as a family. What does it look like for us to hear what it is that Jesus is saying to us and then to live it out? What we're gonna do right now is uh, this is a little bit different. I know normally it's like, okay, we get done, stand and sing. But we're gonna ask you, all of our venues, to stay seated. And um, what we're gonna do is we're gonna ask you to receive a prayer that's going to come in the form of a song and the worship team is going to sing this prayer over you. As we think about being a people who are living a life of allowing Jesus to bring continual transformation to who we are. None of us have arrived in that spot. He's looking to to bring us to the next and the next and the next as we take steps towards looking more and more like him. Father, I, I pray that you would use these words to impact our lives as this song is sung as a prayer to you. We ask that, that it would honor you in Jesus' name.